Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Well, hello there, and welcome to Constitution Classroom. Here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. We've almost, so close, almost made it through uh, Article 4 of the Constitution. Uh, before we before we go on to the remaining clause, though, were there any, any notable uh, judiciary-related events or Constitution-related events that uh, you're keeping an eye on? Well, we had a Supreme Court decision that about a week ago, maybe about two weeks ago, and it involved two individuals at a university, two Christian men whose names I'm not able to pronounce, and so I'm not even going to attempt it. But anyway, they had been denied the right to witness for Christ on their campus, and they claimed it was a violation of free speech, the university set up a zone in which they were allowed to witness the little kind of free speech zone over here that effectively barred them from speaking elsewhere. Anyway, so they filed a suit. And the university challenged, of course, saying that we don't think this is a First Amendment violation. However, later they had graduated from school and the university had abolished that policy. And so they're no longer restricted, and so the university was now claiming this whole case is moot. They're not students anymore, and we don't even have that policy anymore. Well, it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, Justice Thomas, I believe, writing the opinion, said that because they had brought the lawsuit back when they were students, and because they not only had asked for an injunction against the university's policies, but had also asked for nominal money damages for the past abuse, it was not moot, and they could continue. And that's significant today for not only that case, but many similar cases. For example, here at the Foundation for Moral Law, we have a couple of cases going on right now involving the various governor's COVID restrictions. One in Louisiana, for example, and in that case, Governor Edwards in Louisiana had adopted a policy that greatly restricted the right of pastors and churches to hold services. And Pastor Spill, our client in that case, was charged with holding services in violation of that policy. The university, or rather, I'm sorry, the governor, is now claiming that this case is moot because that restriction on churches meeting has now been lifted. However, we believe that we can continue our action in the Fifth Circuit because we have alleged that the past policies did damage the church and the pastor and that he is entitled to monetary damages for the past violation. Likewise, we have a case here in Alabama involving Alabama's governor. And Alabama's governor had issued an executive order that restricted not just churches, but businesses and many others from being open for business, holding services, other things like this. And one of our plaintiffs in this case, for example, is a lady who drives a public school bus 
She's been claiming in that case that a policy that requires her to wear a mask while driving a school bus, well, you're in Utah. You may not know what it's like at the start of the school year in August in Alabama, where the temperature of the bus can get up to 118 degrees, and where if you're wearing a mask, your glasses can fog up, which doesn't make for safe driving. We have businesses that had to close and lost clients as a result, churches that were restricted and how many people they could have at their services, and also pastors who said that part of my parental or my pastoral duties are not only to conduct church services, but to conduct funerals, to visit the sick, to visit the dying, to administer the sacraments and the like. And we've been denied these by the governor's orders. And another concern that we've raised in Alabama about the governor's orders is that these orders can extend by state law. State law gives emergency powers to the governor and can have an order in effect for 60 days. 60 days just expire and the governor just extends it another 60 days and another and another. And we think that the unlimited extensions that the governor seems to feel she's entitled to give here are the violation of the spirit, if not the intent, of the Emergency Powers Act and also our constitutional liberties. Where this case is gonna go, I'm not really sure. We've got a couple of bills by good legislators that are designed to try to, well, I don't mean to brag, but a couple who are even my former law students who are, the, that are to put some restrictions on the governor's emergency powers. We're not saying the governor shouldn't have emergency powers, but they need to be restricted more than they are. And so in all of these, we see constitutional issues at stake right now. Of course, we've already talked about the Equality Act and the threat that would place to women's sports, the threat it would place to, to churches that follow different policies on matters like this, the requirement that it might impose that churches and Christian colleges and so on admit gays and transgenders and the like. We do have another matter going on right now with the NCAA and Oral Roberts University, and I taught at the law school at Oral Roberts University for a number of years back in the 1980s, so I am familiar with this school, and this school has done very well in athletics, but just a couple of days ago, there was a guest editorial in USA Today, which does have a liberal bent, in which they excoriated the NCAA for allowing Oral Roberts to participate when in fact Oral Roberts has restrictions against gays and transgenders, and they said that the NCAA should never tolerate that and never, basically what they said is they should never allow any school that follows the biblical teaching on this to have athletic teams participating in the NCAA. And so once again, we're seeing constitutional issues going on all around us and they certainly affect us in everything we do, and we need to be watching these. We need to be concerned about these, and I can assure you that the Foundation for Moral Law, like other groups, but we are monitoring these things. We are getting involved in filing amicus briefs and the like. We filed a letter of an, an, analyzing this so-called Equality Act that was 
circulated to every member of Congress and every member of the Senate, and it passed the House. We'll see what happens in the Senate. Of course, we've got another issue going on in the Senate right now, too, and that is the For the People Act. And as we've said before, the For the People Act really is not for the people. It is for the Democrats Act is what it should be titled because it will help to perpetuate the liberal establishment of the Democratic Party. But essentially, what this act would do if it is passed is it would basically take every illegal practice that took place in the last election in these various contested states like Pennsylvania and make these mandatory permanently in the future for all 50 states. It would require states to allow same-day same registration. In other words, you just come in and register to vote the same day you vote, including on election day. It would require all states to allow advanced voting. It would not just absentee voting, but general advanced voting. It would require all states to it would restrict all states, I should say, and what they could do as far as purging voter lists from those that haven't voted in the past or for those who may no longer be residents of the district. The restrictions here are such that we think that this is designed to do nothing but to perpetuate the Democrat establishment in power. It also has a path to easier citizenship for people who are not citizens of the United States at the present time. And the goal of this is that we would have many more voters, millions more voters, with the belief that majority of these would be Democratic voters. Also, D.C. citizenship or the D.C. statehood is included as part of this bill. With all of this, this is a very dangerous bill and brings up one more issue, and that is that this has passed the House by a narrow vote. It has not passed the Senate. And of course, to get to a vote in the Senate, we would need to overcome the filibuster, which requires 60 votes of cloture. They are trying to eliminate the cloture requirement. And anyway, that is a rule that in Article 1 that says that each House sets its own rules. We'll see whether they're going to be able to get that done. But anyway, so. Let's get back into Article 4 right after the break. This is good news, maybe exactly when you need it to. Right now, MediShare is waiving their new member fees. This could save you money on top of all that you'll save each month by becoming a member of MediShare. So many people are looking for a healthcare solution right now, seeing the cost of COBRA plans, for instance, and MediShare is the affordable alternative to health insurance. The typical family saves $500 a month. You might save even more. MediShare is a Christian community that shares each other's healthcare costs, and because of the current economic situation, they're making it easier than ever. Apply by March 31st. You can save an additional $170 on your first month. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Just tell them the promo code SHARE to receive your additional savings. Maybe now is the time to make the switch like more than 400,000 people already have and start saving. Here it is. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. 
Pure Light has invented a new type of LED light bulb that makes all other light bulbs obsolete. This new type of LED bulb acts like a $1,000 air purification system, only better. Put this light bulb in, turn it on, and within minutes it starts cleaning and purifying the air and the surfaces around it. Um, I have a stinky dog, and so I put the four bulbs in within 24 hours. I could tolerate it, and then when I turn the lights on in the morning, I went back 20 minutes later, nothing, no smell. The Pure Light LED light bulb performs seven functions besides providing light, including cleaning the air of all types of odors, any kind of smoke, of eliminating mold and eliminating deadly germs like salmonella, E. coli, even flesh-eating bacteria. My kids who are grown up say our house smells like old people house. And so I put bulbs in the hallway and my uh, kids from Florida came last week and said, man, the house smells great. See for yourself at pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com. It's the next generation of light. Hello, this is Wayne Alaroot for our newest sponsor, Asset Strategies, or ASI for short. ASI is a precious metals powerhouse. They sell gold and silver. Never in history has there been a more important moment to buy gold and silver. ASI has been in business for 39 years. They've served over 20,000 clients and sold $5 billion worth of gold, silver, and precious metals with zero complaints. Last year, gold saw gains of 25%. Silver nearly doubled gold's performance. Now Democrats are in charge. Green New Deal, open borders, free health care for illegals. Bailout broke cities and states. The debt is about to go through the stratosphere. The time to buy is now. The owners of ASI, Michael and Rich Checkin, have been my close personal friends for 16 years. ASI is the company I trust when it comes to buying and selling precious metals. Call now to receive a free consultation and a free one-ounce Silver Eagle with every qualifying purchase when you mention the Wayne Allyn Show. Call 800-831-0007. That's 800-831-0007. Or visit AssetStrategies.com. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, before we move on to to, uh, Article 4, uh, to that last clause... I have a question for you, um, and it's just some clarification. I mean, there was a very high-profile, actually a couple of pretty high-profile mass shootings in the last couple of weeks. Uh, The fervor for gun control is building, and somewhere I was reading um, yesterday or today that uh, the Ninth Circuit had some kind of a ruling regarding firearms. There's speculation the Supreme Court may sometime be ruling on uh, Second Amendment stuff. Tell me about this ruling that took place recently. What, What all did that entail? Okay, well, as you said, we've seen a couple of tragic shootings. One of them was in Atlanta, and it involved a number of ladies that were working in massage parlors being shot and killed, and majority of these being Asian. From what the shooter has said, that his motivation on this had nothing to do with race. Rather, it was the fact that he had become a sex addict. He blamed them for this unfairly, and but... There doesn't seem to be any reason to think this was actually race-related. Then we have the shooting in Boulder that took place. And again, we have this is a shooting by a man who apparently was Muslim and who's pro-Muslim and anti-American sentiments had been expressed on the internet on a number of occasions. And but anyway. The administration is now jumping on both of these as a basis for imposing more gun control. In fact, the father of the policeman there in Boulder that was killed, the father of the policeman, just stated today that his son would be very offended 
if he knew that his death was being used to advance gun control because he wasn't in favor of anything like that at all. But the case you're talking about right now, case of the Ninth Circuit, which is the circuit of the West Coast, the case that they have decided involves the state of Hawaii. And as I understand the Hawaii law, it simply says that you cannot carry a firearm, either concealed or openly, unless you can show a special circumstance by which you need to do so. But that's not what the Second Amendment says. The Second Amendment says that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Keep, meaning that you retain possession of them, and bear, meaning you have the right to carry them. And nothing there suggests that that can be limited to any special circumstances. Part of the legal argument that is being made here, and part of what the Ninth Circuit says in this case, is that Hawaii had some unique restrictive gun laws that go back to before Hawaii consented to become a territory of the United States, and if I recall correctly, that was 1898, and had a history of stronger gun control laws before they became a state in the 1950s, all of which may well be true, but is irrelevant. When they become a state, they are fully subject to the Second Amendment, and nothing in their history gives them any exemption from the Second Amendment. And so I don't think that argument is going to fly. I would say almost certainly this case is going to be appealed from the Ninth Circuit to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm quite sure this is going to be a case that we at the Foundation for Moral Law will want to file an amicus brief in. And might note also that the Ninth Circuit does tend to be the most liberal circuit in the United States and is more frequently reversed by the Supreme Court than any other circuit. And so I have serious doubts that this ruling of the Ninth Circuit is going to be the final statement on the subject. I think it's very likely that they will be reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court. After all, the Supreme Court, back in the early 2000s, issued a ruling in the Heller versus District of Columbia case in which they said that the right to keep and bear arms in the Second Amendment is an individual right guaranteed to all individual citizens. And in the McDonald case, a few years later, they said this right is also incorporated and applied to the states. And so the states cannot restrict the right to keep and bear arms any more than the federal government can. And based on the Heller and the McDonald cases, I think it's very likely that the Supreme Court will reverse the Ninth Circuit because the U.S. Supreme Court has these precedents and also the U.S. Supreme Court is considerably more conservative today than it was when those two cases were decided. Well, let's look at the fourth article of the Constitution once again. And as we've seen, it's spoken about full faith and credit and privileges and immunities. It's speaks about the admission of new states into the United States. And it goes on to say, though, in Section 4 of Article 4, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a 
republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application to the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. Now, we've certainly seen a lot of that domestic violence taking place last summer in states all across the country, particularly in Washington and Oregon and in Minnesota, but elsewhere as well. And as far as the protection that the United States gives here, well, if they are invaded by a foreign country, then the United States has a duty to come in right away with federal troops to help defend that state against the invasion. And they can also protect against domestic violence. However, they can do that only if the legislature of that state requests them to do so, or if the executive, that is the governor, requests them to do so if the legislature cannot be convened. And last summer, you recall that the president repeatedly offered to send in the National Guard, and the governors of several of these states refused. They seemed to think what was going on there in their state was perfectly acceptable, that even though you see burning buildings all over the place, they would say this is mostly peaceful demonstrations. And now, of course, it's a very different story when we see a much less violent event taking place in D.C. Now we put up walls and fences and bring in the guard and everything, but a very different standard. And we're not justifying what took place there by any means. We're just saying that they are using a different standard as they looked at what took place in the states as to what took place in the federal government. But based on Article 4, Section 4, we would say that the administration would not have the authority to send in troops to protect against domestic violence unless the state legislature or governor requested them to do so. However, that's not entirely going to be the case because we do have the Insurrection Act, and especially we've got another factor here too, and that is the protection of federal buildings from these insurrectionists and the like. And anyway, so based on that, it's arguable whether we could have sent in troops or not. I think there's a good reason to think that we could have, but at any rate, thus far, we've chosen not to do so. Domestic invasion, we might also ask whether we've got in effect a foreign invasion taking place across the Texas border right now. And it certainly looks like there's a crisis going on there, whether the administration wants to call it that or not. But one other issue that comes up in regard to this particular clause, when it says she'll guarantee to each state a Republican form of government, we've never really had a whole lot of federal involvement in this. For example, the federal government requires each state to adopt a constitution that conforms to Republican principles before they become states. But let's say we had a situation where a state wanted to do something very different. What could be done? Let's talk about that after the break. We are back. 
This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we are talking with uh, Colonel John Eidsmo. He's the host of the show. He is with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, as we are making our way through uh, Article 4 of the Constitution, uh, it's taken us a while to get here, but uh, let's, let's go ahead and finish up this last clause here. All right, just one thing more in regard to Article 4, Section 4, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. Now, Republican there is capitalized, but that doesn't mean the Republican Party. Rather, it means Republican as against, say, monarchical or fascist or communist or something like that. And when we say Republican, we mean this as distinctive from democracy, that pure democracy was something that the framers did not want. And that for the People Act that I mentioned earlier repeatedly says that we are trying to adopt this act in order to safeguard democracy in the United States. But the framers regarded pure democracy as mob rule, as the majority running roughshod over the rights of the minority, and they wanted a constitutional republic instead. And the difference would be that in a republic, number one, we have government by elected representatives rather than simply by the people themselves voting to do whatever they want, as had been the case in ancient classical Athens and Greece, which was democracy, but very cumbersome, and many times minorities were treated very unfairly by the majority there. But a second thing is that it means that there are restrictions on what the majority can do. They cannot run roughshod over the rights of the minority. For example, let's say the majority of the people of the state of Utah wanted loving liberty to be abolished, even if the majority wanted that. If the courts are doing their job properly, they would strike any law like that down as unconstitutional, because part of the idea of a republic is that the minority has certain rights that even the majority cannot take away. A third thing that characterizes Republican government as against pure democracy or other forms is that in a republic, even the rulers are governed by the law. As John Adams once wrote, the very definition of a republic is an empire of laws and not of men. In other words, even those running the government are bound by the law, just like Darius was in Daniel chapter 5. He himself, once a law was in effect, he himself could not change that law, requiring people going into the den of lions if they prayed to God rather than asking things of the king. So those are the things that make a republic unique. And we are to be a republic, not a democracy. And the federal government is responsible under Article 4, Section 4, to guarantee to each state a republican form of government. Mostly they do that by making sure that they have adopted a constitution before statehood that is based on republican principles, like three branches of government, usually with the exception of Nebraska, a two-house legislature, a bill of rights, and other things such as, as this. Now, after statehood, let's say that one state were to say, 
okay, we've decided that we don't want to have a Republican form of government anymore. We want instead to be a monarchy. And so we're going to have a king over Alabama from now on. And that king is going to have all power. And when the king dies, then his next of kin is going to take over as king after him. Well, if Alabama tried to adopt a system like that, I think probably the federal government would probably step in and say, no, we have a duty under Article 4, Section 4 to guarantee to Alabama Republican form of government, and that's just not going to fly. It can't be done. One thing that a lot of states have is what we call initiative or referendum. Initiative or referendum is a procedure by which the people of a state, in some states, in fact, a majority of states, there are some states don't have this, but in a majority of states, if the legislature were to pass a law that many people in the state don't like, they could get up a petition and call for a referendum in which there would be a popular vote of the people on whether to retain or repeal that statute that the legislature just passed. Or the term initiative is sometimes used. That's very similar to referendum. That's where the legislature is refusing to pass a law that the people want. And so the people get a petition and get enough votes in that petition to have this placed on the ballot in an election, maybe part of the general election or maybe a special election, where the people vote on whether that law should be adopted, even though the legislature has said we don't want it. And a good friend of mine, the late Dr. Cleon Skousen, somebody that I think probably is familiar to many people in this audience, a man that I regarded as a good friend, a mentor, his book, The Making of America, I consider to be, besides my own, several of the, one of the very best books ever written on an overview of the Constitution. And again, The Making of America by Cleon Skousen. I recommend that book very highly. But Cleon Skousen once they took the position that the very idea of a initiative or referendum was unconstitutional because it was democracy, the people voting, rather than republic, Republican, Republican government having their elected representatives decide things. I certainly see his point. Not sure I'd go quite that far. I think that a limited power of initiative or referendum can be a popular check on the legislature. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that's anti-Republican, but I certainly see his point, and his overall point is a very important point, and that is we don't just want a referendum or a poll of the people every time we decide a policy. We elect people that we trust to make those decisions for us, and if we wanted just pure democracy like that, we wouldn't even need a legislature. All we would need is a polling agency to take a poll every time a policy issue came up and Whatever the poll showed, it would be adopted as a law or rejected or repealed. And so clearly that's not what we want. I certainly see Dr. Skousen's point on this, but again, I'd probably say that initiative and referendum used sparingly is an appropriate check on federal power. 
Well, with that, I think we can move on from there to Article 5. Article 5 is a very important article in the Constitution because this deals with constitutional amendments. George Washington, in his farewell address, had made the statement that if at any particular the disposition or enumeration of powers in the Constitution be wrong, let it be corrected by an amendment in the way the Constitution designates. But he said, but let there be no change by usurpation. Though this may, in one instance, be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. What Washington was saying here is, it is appropriate to occasionally amend the Constitution. He's saying, we may have made some mistakes in the Constitution, or it is possible that maybe changing circumstances will require some things that we did that were right at the time will require that those things be changed. And so there should be a procedure to amend the Constitution, and there is, Article 5, and it should be used occasionally. But what he is saying also is that having a procedure for amending the Constitution can be a check against usurpation. Because what is really dangerous is not just amending the Constitution once in a while, and we've amended it only 27 times in over two centuries, and take away the Bill of Rights, which was pretty well agreed to before the Constitution was ratified, and we've amended it only 17 times since then. That's less than once a decade. And anyway, that being the case, we aren't abusing that process. But he says if we didn't ever, if we couldn't amend the Constitution, then courts would be reinterpreting the Constitution. They would be distorting it beyond recognition. And that is far more dangerous than an occasional well-placed and well-worded amendment. And the founders would have entirely agreed with what Washington had said in that farewell address, although, of course, they're writing sometime earlier. And the founders, in Article 5, provide two means by which the Constitution can be amended. And we'll talk about those means right after this break. for our newest sponsor, Asset Strategies, or ASI for short. ASI is a precious metals powerhouse. They sell gold and silver. Never in history has there been a more important moment to buy gold and silver. ASI has been in business for 39 years. They've served over 20,000 clients and sold $5 billion worth of gold, silver, and precious metals with zero complaints. Last year, gold saw gains of 25%. Silver nearly doubled gold's performance. Now Democrats are in charge. Green New Deal, open borders, free health care for illegals, bailout broke cities and states. The debt is about to go through the stratosphere. The time to buy is now. The owners of ASI, Michael and Rich Checkin, have been my close personal friends for 16 years. ASI is the company I trust when it comes to buying and selling precious metals. Call now to receive a free consultation and a free one-ounce Silver Eagle with every qualifying purchase when you mention the Wayne Alaroot Show. Call 800-831-0007. That's 800-831-0007. Or visit AssetStrategies.com. 
Pure Light has invented a new type of LED light bulb that makes all other light bulbs obsolete. This new type of LED bulb acts like a $1,000 air purification system, only better. Put this light bulb in, turn it on, and within minutes it starts cleaning and purifying the air and the surfaces around it. Um, I have a stinky dog, and so I put the four bulbs in within 24 hours. I could tolerate it, and then when I turn the lights on in the morning, I went back 20 minutes later, nothing, no smell. The Pure Light LED light bulb performs seven functions besides providing light, including cleaning the air of all types of odors, any kind of smoke, of eliminating mold and eliminating deadly germs like salmonella, E. coli, even flesh-eating bacteria. My kids who are grown-ups say our house smells like old people house. And so I put bulbs in the hallway and my uh, kids from Florida came last week and said, man, the house smells great. See for yourself at pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com. It's the next generation of light. Do you have an idea for an invention or new product? Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Then call InventHelp now. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential and explains every step of the invention process. We create professional materials representing your idea and submit it to companies who are looking for new ideas. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We also offer services including 3D modeling and animation demonstrating your idea, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to show InventHelp client ideas to additional companies. Join the thousands of people just like you who chose InventHelp to pursue their idea. We are experienced. We are working for you. We are InventHelp. Call us for free information at 1-800-460-1663. That's 1-800-460-1663. Again, 1-800-460-1663. Once again, we welcome you back to our final segment today of Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, I'm, I'm excited that we're talking about the part of the Constitution where uh, we can talk about how things can change with the times. I think this is a long overdue discussion. I wanted to mention something to you that, that occurred to me as you were talking about, um, you know, the referendum process in the last segment. And, and, and I have the same concerns you do. I think people can be swayed super easily to, to go after something that appears shiny that they may not have really thought through. But I would be okay with the idea of people uh, having the power of referendum as it pertains to limiting government power over the people. And uh, if there's if there's going to be an expansion of government power, I think that should come through elected representatives who are directly accountable to the voters and, you know, are supposed to be known for playing by the rules of the system, whatever they may be. Your thoughts? Well, I like that distinction that if we are seeking to limit power that government has taken, the people should be able to do that as a check on their legislature. But if they want to have more power exercised by the government, then perhaps the elected representatives of the people should be making that decision rather than the people, because very often the people will want to do so simply to gain more benefits for themselves. It's been said that the government that wants to rob Peter to pay Paul will never lack for the support of Paul. And 
So we need to be very careful about that. I'm also thinking about the the idea that those elected officials actually take an oath to uphold the Constitution. Where's the average citizen? I mean, they may believe in it, but they haven't sworn an oath to it. But those elected leaders have. And I think that's uh, that's some pretty strong teeth for, well, then you need to, you know, obey that oath. I haven't considered that, but you're absolutely right. That they have a greater responsibility under the Constitution than the average citizen has. And that's another reason why we should, for the most part, entrust governmental decisions to those whom we elect. And if we no longer trust them, then we should vote them out of office and put in somebody we do trust. Well, let's look at the methods for amending the Constitution. And they're set forth here in Article 5. And Article 5 simply says the Constitution whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to the Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes, as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states, or by conventions in three-fourths of the states, as one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses of the ninth section of the first article, and that no state, without its consent, shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. The last part is saying that no state can be deprived of having two senators without the consent of that state. And I doubt that any state would ever consent to that. Also, the other part here, that basically what it's saying is that there can be no constitutional amendment to end the slave trade, not end slavery itself, but end the slave trade prior to 1808. That was a common agreement at the time. There was an agreement to get over this issue that was precluding them from even agreeing on a constitution, let alone getting it ratified by the states, that there was a general view, even in the states that still had slavery, there was a general view at this time that within the next 20 years or so, slavery is going to pretty well die out. It's no longer profitable. And of course, the invention of the cotton gin changed all of that. But anyway, so they agreed that prior to 1808, there could be nothing that would amend the sl- end the slave trade. And anyway, of course, the invention of the cotton gin chained all, chained all that. The slave trade, though, that is bringing in slaves, importing them from Africa or Arabia, that that was brought to an end in 1808. But slavery, of course, itself took some time after that. Anyway, that's not the central part of what we're talking about here with the Article 5 for amending the Constitution. Two means, and I don't think we're even going to have time today to talk about the Constitutional Convention issue. Rather, I think we'll have to save that for next time. But provision here provides that Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to the Constitution. And then, when Congress has adopted the amendments has to be adopted by a two-thirds vote of the House and a two-thirds vote of the Senate. Interestingly, nothing here about the President 
having any power to veto a constitutional amendment, once two-thirds of both houses have adopted it, then it goes to the states. And the states will then have the opportunity to decide whether to ratify this amendment or not, and it will become part of the Constitution if it is ratified by three-fourths of the states. That would be 38 states today with 50 states. Three-fourths of the states. And as to how they ratify, there are two means by which states may ratify. One would be in the state legislatures, which is the way we've always done it, and that would be a simple majority of each of the two houses of the legislature. If, that if three-fourths of the states ratify in this way, then the amendment is adopted. Or if Congress chooses, they can require the states, instead of having their legislatures decide to ratify, they could require the states to hold ratifying conventions to decide whether to ratify. As far as I can recall, we have never used the convention route for ratification. But if Congress wanted to send an amendment to the states and they thought, for example, this amendment is popular with the people, but a lot of the state legislatures are opposed to this amendment, the Congress could decide to do an end run around the state legislatures and say that the states will have ratifying conventions to decide whether to ratify. But one thing that I don't think they could do is they couldn't say, okay, states east of the Mississippi will ratify by their legislatures, states west of the Mississippi will ratify by conventions. It has to be one means of ratifying all across the country. Another thing we'll notice here is that nothing here specifies how long the states have in order to do that ratification. And commonly, since the early 1800s at least, when Congress has sent an amendment to the states for ratification, Congress has specified a ratification period, and commonly that has been seven years. But nothing in Article 5 says it has to be seven years. They could make it five years or 10 years, they could possibly even not put a time limit on it at all. And in fact, that's exactly what they did with the Bill of Rights. They, the Bill of Rights, when they sent the Bill of Rights to the states to be ratified, this was 12 amendments, and 10 of them were ratified within a couple of years. One of them was never ratified, but it dealt with legislative reapportionment. One of them was not ratified until the 1990s. Here's what happened. This was an amendment that provided that if, that if the legislature, if Congress were to vote a pay raise, that pay raise wouldn't go into effect until after the next election. Three-fourths of the states never got around to ratifying this. Well, in the early 1990s, there was a student in economics at the University of Texas. His name was Greg Watson. And Greg Watson was writing a paper for an economics class on legislative waste, and he said, one way we could get rid of legislative waste would be to amend the Constitution to say that Congress can't vote itself pay raises unless until after the next election, so we could vote them out. 
And he said, now Congress isn't going to approve an amendment like that today that limits their own power to raise their salaries. But there was one way back there in 1789 that never got ratified. And since Congress didn't impose a period, we could still ratify that today. His professor gave him a C-plus on the paper, saying that it was creative, but the idea that states could now ratify a 200-year-old amendment is preposterous. Well, Greg Watson wasn't convinced. When he graduated, he became an aide to a legislator in Texas, persuaded him. The Texas legislature ratified that amendment. A series of states ratified it. And by the mid-1990s, the 38th state ratified and the director of archives declared this the 27th Amendment to the United States Constitution, demonstrating how one person, even a college student, can certainly change policy if you are determined. <laughs>